UK News podcast listeners, I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it's Thursday morning, September 17th, 2020, but in Washington, D.C., where my two guests are located, it's only Wednesday evening, September 16th, and I'm speaking via Skype to Hilary Mossberg and John Delosso of The Century about their recent report titled Overt Affairs, How North Korean Businessmen Busted Sanctions in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Hilary Mossberg is an anti-money laundering expert, and prior to joining the century, she was with the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence for almost a decade. And John DeLosso is a senior investigator at the Century, where he focuses on the Democratic Republic of the Congo. His background is in auditing, market intelligence, and tracing illicit networks. Thank you for joining me today, Hillary and John. Thank you Thanks for, for having us. us. So your report is titled Overt Affairs, How North Korean Businessmen Busted Sanctions in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, anyone can download it free on the website, thecentury, one word, .org. It's only 22 pages, but it's packed with a lot of interesting detail. I like the title. It sounds dramatic and enticing. Uh, sanctions busting in the Congo. It could be almost the title of a film. Uh, which Congo are we talking about? Is it the big one that used to be called Zaire? Yes. <laughs> All right. And how did you come up with a title? It's a very good question. Uh, it's a bit cheeky, perhaps, but I was thinking about the show Covert Affairs, uh, and I hope I'm not running afoul of any trademark issues here. But um, my immediate thought was it was astounding how open these people were, how open these North Koreans were in doing these activities in the Democratic Republic of the Congo that are quite clearly prohibited by a slate of international sanctions programs. So, you know, that's kind of how it came about. Drop the sea on covert affairs and you have something that's pretty uh, explanatory. Yeah. Now, as you were researching the story, did it feel exciting to you? Tell us a little bit about that process. Absolutely. That's a good question. I would say at the outset, it was not particularly exciting. Just for background purposes, I really have no experience dealing in North Korea. So, um, you know, the team that I work on that was investigating this uh, case, you know, we, we didn't we didn't really understand what we were looking at, I guess you could say, from the outset, only through talking to people like Hillary, who have really deep and lengthy experience looking at sanctions and sanctions enforcement. And then one of my colleagues who actually uh, has worked on several cases of North Korean revenue generation in Africa that we really understand what we had. So at the outset, it was not necessarily something we were even going to pursue. But once we got a sense from talking to Hillary and my colleague that, yes, if North Koreans are abroad, they're not they're probably not just enterprising individuals who scraped together some cash and went to you know some random country in Africa to make money. They, they're probably there uh, for a purpose. So once we started digging into once we had a sense that what we what we found initially was important, once we started digging into it, it got really interesting because we started finding out that these individuals, you know, had access to U.S. dollars through a bank account in the DRC and also won public contracts. Um, and then beyond that, you know, once we started to look into kind of how these people came into winning uh, government work. Then we saw pictures of them 
you know, standing next to and in some cases speaking directly with government officials and not just kind of run of the mill, low level functionaries, but people who are actually quite powerful and influential. Yeah, I want to come back to those uh, those picks uh, later on. There. Uh, Hillary, was was this research all done on the net or was any of it done in situ? But they, I, I remember very distinctly many, many months ago, John calling me and, um, you know, kind of casually asking, so we have some like North Koreans who are operating in, or in the DRC. Um, you know, can we, is this like, are there sanctions violations that might be, that might come into play here? And I, mm-hmm. I almost laughed at him because I said, yeah, yes, there are. There are. <laughs> this is one of the most uh, comprehensive sanctions programs that exist, not just by the UN, but also the European Union and the United States. Um, there are, you know, dozens of sanctions programs against North Korea and including North Korean actions, activities outside of North Korea all over the world. So a lot of the work from my team was, you know, you know, researching the what sanctions exist, um, exactly what uh, which sanctions were violated and and all of those you know, kind of regulatory details. And then when we came to the banking details in this case, that was another kind of interesting situation um, that took quite a bit of uh, research again on our on our part to to kind of you know take apart the the banking structure make sure the investigators fully understood you know what the correspondent banking networks looked like what a nested account was and also some of these um, banks uh, like the correspondent banking relationships that we were seeing in this case were not very clear so it took it took quite a bit of effort to to try to get as much information as we could to uh, fully explain the scenario. Okay, now before we get uh, into the story in too much detail, just to introduce our listeners to the Sentry. What is the Sentry and what is its mission? The Sentry is an investigative and policy team focused on violent kleptocracies in sub-Saharan Africa. We specifically focus on four countries at the moment, uh, Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Sudan, and South Sudan. And our ultimate goal is to to make war not profitable uh, for those uh, corrupt actors who are in leadership positions in these countries that are profiting from the violence and human rights abuses um, in in these these areas. Um, Our teams also look at the international uh, facilitators who are helping these corrupt leaders move their assets out of the region. Um, And we publish reports and also work very closely with governments all over the world, including on the continent, but uh, continent of Africa, but also elsewhere, um, to push policy reforms um, to make sure that it is uh, much more difficult for these actors to to move their money and steal uh, public funds and, um, you know, bring light to these illicit behaviors. And uh, how is George Clooney involved? And why did he make this his passion? Mr. Clooney is one of our co-founders with John Pendergast. He, uh, he and John Pendergast have been involved in the Darfur crisis in Sudan for a long time. Hmm. And the century kind of grew out of previous projects that they had worked on where they saw that the international community, namely the United States government, but also governments in the in the EU and the UK, you know, had the right goals in mind of stopping violence and preventing corruption. But often there wasn't enough resources being allocated to some of these efforts. And so George Clooney and John Pendergast noticed that there were these gaps 
and resources and thought one way that might be successful to address some of these issues was is to create a, a kind of force multiplier, you know, for the public sector to use. And out of that came the century. So, you know, we're staffed by, you know, a diverse group of people from former U.S. government employees, former investigative journalists, former bankers, you know, all kinds of people with different backgrounds. And what we're able to do is use our various expertise and uh, experiences to come up with more creative ways to address some of these issues surrounding, you know, corruption and illicit financial networks. And are you aware if uh, Mr. Clooney has uh, optioned the film rights to uh, Overt Affairs? <laughs> uh, we're still in discussions um, on that matter, actually. <laughs> I, I can see a, a few chase scenes through Kinshasa. Uh, there's, there's a, uh, I can, uh, I'm available to be uh, brought in as an outside consultant, you know, if you like, on uh, North Korean stuff. <laughs> It's a great so, idea. Let's turn to the story. So, John, how did it all begin? What started you on this trail? Yeah, it was kind of a uh, happenstance. I mean, I'll be a, a little bit maybe uh, coy about the precise nature of how we started on I understand. Um, what so I guess we'll. we'll <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but but the origin story is roughly that you know we were informed that there was a business operating in the DRC that uh, was substantially linked to North Korea. Mm-hmm. And from there, we just did you know, the, the standard. We tried to verify what we had heard. Um, and then once we, once we found out that it was true uh, and went through the kind of you know, evaluation period I mentioned at the outset where, where we weren't entirely sure if this is something we should, we should actually go after, um, once we got a sense that it was important if there was a North Korean company in the DRC, then we basically just wanted to get anything we could get, any kind of public records, you know, the typical thing that people who are, you know, quote unquote, following the money do like mm. where do the when was this company set up? Who are the shareholders? Who are the directors? Um, what's the corporate footprint? Where do they bank? All of those things. So in the case of North Korea, even though we don't have a lot of specific expertise, like this was kind of them operating in a sense on terrain that we're very familiar with. So we know how to go about getting that kind of documentation. Ah, okay. um, so, so the more we, you know, the more kind of documents we got, like simple things that in, you know, in a number of countries, maybe not the U.S., but maybe if you look at the example of the U.K., would be publicly available. So articles of incorporation, yeah. changes in shareholding, et cetera. So when, once we got that, we saw, um, you know, some, I would say some pretty serious problems. And in consulting with Hillary's team, we were able to get a, a sense that this would be a matter of public interest. So, you know, once well, let, we let did that. Let me jump in there with a question. Yeah, 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 our, our listeners might be wondering, what's wrong with North Korea doing business in the Democratic Republic of Congo? What is the issue here that, uh, that makes you, uh, that set you on this journey? Absolutely. I mean, I, I guess what I'll I'll give the general framework for how we operate, um, and then maybe turn it over to Hillary to get into some of the the specifics of sanctions. But what we're what we're trying to understand in the DRC is broadly corruption and profit motives that are somehow related to poor governance, et cetera. And in the case of this report, it's not about you know, let's say for example, what we typically see which might be a company, a, a, you know, let's say a multinational mining company coming in from some sort of cushy jurisdiction, probably in the West, and, you know, plying officials at whatever level with cash and other incentives 
in order to secure favorable commercial conditions on the ground. In this case, it's very different. Um, we're not talking about multinational corporations. We're talking about two guys, as far as we know. Um, but, you know, we ground our work in, you know, what I guess you could call like in, international criteria that that govern proper behavior, I suppose. And in this case, the, the criterion that we focused on most specifically was the sanctions, um, you know, UN, EU and US. And I think that that having some connection to all three of those different sanctions programs is important in this case, because, uh, you know, we're not just looking at the US, let's say, and its own particular interpretation of how the world should react to North Korea and what North Koreans should or should not be able to do. We're talking about the international community in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty clear from the sanctions programs that have been implemented from by the international community that North Koreans, for example, should not have access to or the companies they control should not have access to banking services or should not be able to provide certain kinds of public works or uh, statues, let's say, to entities within UN member states. They shouldn't, you know, UN member state government bodies should not be using publicly uh, you know, public money to fund those kinds of works. So, so that's that's the basis. You know, you have to have something to grant, some sort of criterion to to ground your investigation in. We don't do things just because they're interesting. We do things because there's some sort of wrongdoing that's uh, that's taking place. So, I think with that, I probably hand it over to Hillary to explain perhaps why North Korean sanctions uh, matter. And also, uh, John has hinted at something. Uh... Uh, that's at the heart of the story, which is that uh, North Korea was apparently selling statues uh, in the DRC. Why Why is that a, a, an issue with regard to sanctions? Yeah, that's a very interesting part of the story. So, you know, sanctions against North Korea are, as I said before, some of the most comprehensive uh, sanctions programs that the world has ever seen. It's a kind of a unique case um, in in human history where where uh, you know governments all over the world have have banded together to take the the very serious threat of North Korean proliferation. Uh, seriously and has, you know, they've done very, you know, incredible job, you know, in an attempt to stifle North Korean efforts to raise funds, um, get access to nuclear weapons material, and then also just, you know, get access to any economic resources that the government could then use to further their their military and nuclear uh, ambitions. You know, the UN sanctions against North Korea are extensive, um, you know, name an economic activity, and it's likely included under UN sanctions. And by nature of the the UN sanctions programs, all of the UN sanctions programs, um, unfortunately, uh, enforcement of those programs is up to member states. Mm -hmm. So the UN doesn't have its own enforcement arm. Um, It would be nice if they had some kind of like police force to go around and enforce these things, but they don't. So it's up to the member states. So in this case, it would have been up to the government of the DRC to enforce these sanctions violations. In the case of the United States, however, the United States is much more forward-leaning and has um, what some describe as extraterritoriality, which may or may not be legal in international law, but regardless, what the United States has decided is that this threat is so serious to the national security of the United States that any foreign financial institution that knowingly conducts uh, transactions on behalf of North Korea or North Korean persons um, is sanctionable. 
and that that is such a broad regulation. It is much more broad than, say, uh, many of the other existing sanctions programs that the United States has has implemented. Um, and then, of course, they also have implemented all of the UN sanctions, just as the European Union has as well implemented all of the UN sanctions. So, you know, we're talking about all of the, you know, major economies of the world has have basically shut off their, uh, or, you know, in theory have shut off their financial systems from uh, North Korean actors. Um, and what we know of North Korean actors is that any North Korean uh, citizen who is operating in economic activity outside of North Korea, generally speaking, is doing so on behalf of the government or the military, almost all of the activities that have been uncovered, not just by the century, but by, you know, any, uh, uh, many other law enforcement agencies and governments and other groups, um, is, are methods for the North Korean government to obtain cash because this, the nature of the sanctions programs are so comprehensive. They are struggling to find, uh, to get access to, to funds, to, to cash, um, to carry out their, uh, to carry out their various ambitions. Just to be clear here, uh, is there any uh, economic activity that North Korea could engage in in the DRC that would not be sanctioned? So if it were, for example, I don't know, buying rice or uh, medical supplies, would that be uh, acceptable? So there are humanitarian exceptions. However, under the U.S. sanctions, because of, again, because of how strict they are, um, mm-hmm. if a financial, financial institution wanted to, so any transaction would require the use of a bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, in theory, it's very doubtful that a North Korean would show up with a bunch of cash and be able to somehow move the goods without touching the banking system. Um, so anyways, any banking system, any financial institution that transferred money on behalf of the North Korean individual would have to get a license from the U.S. Treasury Department in order to avoid being sanctionable, if that makes sense. Um, right. And again, UN sanctions are enforceable by member states, but in theory, uh, yes, there are there are humanitarian exemptions. Okay, now uh, back to the story here. So who are the, uh, the two North Korean gentlemen who are the major players in this story? Yeah, they are, um, I would say, fairly mysterious at this point to us. We found quite a bit on their activities in the country, but in terms of their backstory, that's not something we've really been able to crack just yet, uh, mm-hmm. but would certainly like to. So there's one individual by the name, and I'm probably going to do a poor job at pronouncing these names because I'm not a Korean speaker, but Pak Wasong mm-hmm. is uh, the older of the two gentlemen who's the majority shareholder, so 60% shareholder in this company, Congo Akonde, and also is listed as the manager. And then we have this individual by the name of Wang Kilsu, who is, I think, about 10 years younger um, and is a 40 percent shareholder in in some documentation is listed as the technical director of mm-hmm. the company. Uh, we don't know much about them, but it seems from the limited information we've gathered on kind of their dealings in the DRC that Pak would appear to be the person who is most closely linked to the statue projects in this kind of uh, you know, distant province in the DRC. He's the one we see placing the symbolic foundation stone at the statue that was ultimately erected um, in the honor of uh, then President Joseph Bula's father. Uh, and also we see him at this similar, this individual pock at the same event walking with the governor of that province, who um, we assume was was responsible for commissioning Congo Akande to build the statues. 
But then uh, Mr. Wang Kilsu shows up in Kinshasa speaking to the governor of that province, who's also a, a very important top official in the former president's political party, which goes by the acronym the PPRD. And Wang Kilsu was kind of selling, it seems, a, a fairly elaborate park project to the government of Kinshasa province. Um, there's some uncertainty around whether or not that project was actually, um, you know, the government actually contracted the work. And but we do know that it, it hasn't really happened. Um, mm-hmm. But but either way, you know, if I had to to make an assumption, which I typically don't like doing, it seems like maybe Pac is more of the the fine artist, whereas Wong is more of the landscape architect. Right. Now, uh, you say that we don't know much about the backstory. So that, so these gentlemen haven't turned up elsewhere in the world doing other allegedly involved in other nefarious activities. Is that correct? Not that uh, we're uh, not that we're aware I mean, that is something we would be keenly interested in finding out uh, to the extent that it still kind of falls within our remit as an organization that's primarily focused on, uh, you know, four countries that Hillary mentioned in Africa. But but but, you know, to get back to the title, one of the things that was really compelling about doing this work for us is that the sanctions, as Hillary said, are so expansive, particularly from the U.S. and North Korea, which made it all the more surprising and shocking that these individuals would be able to go to a jurisdiction that the century typically focuses on and engage in behavior that has been pro- prohibited broadly by you know, the international community, but without real concern about, you know, even doing something as simple as obscuring their national origin, using a you know local counterpart to act as a, an intermediary, you know, like pulling a Mossack Fonseca and, and paying somebody in a you know poor part of town to sign their names to, the, to a document, you know, be a nominee director for the company. Like yeah. we don't see any of that behavior. And I think that actually says a lot about, you know, governance and kind of the, the, if you want to call it like the, the permissiveness of the environment in the DRC to people who are interested in busting sanctions. And that's where it kind of gets into, to terrain that, that is of interest to us because, um, you know, a lot of what we're focusing on, as, as Hillary can tell you better than I can, is looking at some of these what you could call coercive economic tools that can be part of the foreign policy quiver and can be used to you know, influence whatever actions on the ground or, you know, whether it's to, to um, you know, force a, a particular faction in a country to come to the table to negotiate for peace or prevent, you know, an or, uh, a government like North Korea from developing weapons that, that most of us in the world would not like to see them have. Now, do we know if either of the men is uh, French speaking? We presume that Mr. Pak is a French speaker because in all of the you know, video we see him appear in, which is a, a fairly small um, base basis for review, but there's no translator around or nobody that we would immediately, you know, identify as a translator. So when he's in this far-flung province, you know, the people we see around him in general are people who are who look to be local. They're wearing, you know, fluorescent attire that's consistent with, uh, you know, what a construction worker would wear. And but then when we see Mr. Pak walking next to the governor at that time, yeah, um, and and you know seemingly having some sort of banter, there's right. nobody around who appears to be you know interpreting for them. Yeah. Um, then we do know that Mr. Wang Kilsu is a uh, is a French speaker. Hmm. We've uh, been able to obtain video of him speaking. He speaks French very well. Uh, so my understanding as a you know non North Korean expert who's had enough conversations with North Korea experts at this point is that 
you know, it wouldn't be by happenstance uh, That's right. that he speaks it. He most French likely is not a language of, of commerce or or uh, or yeah, not a language commonly used in North Korea. As you say, he would be he would have been trained uh, to speak French either for the diplomatic uh, mission or for uh, some kind of overseas trade. Interesting. And, and you know, one notable detail that I took from the recording we were able to review is that this is a very general general description, but he has a, I would say, African-inflected accent, which to me says this is probably somebody who, you know, has been in the region for a while, perhaps, because I got to assume that in Pyongyang at this language school, you know, they're, they're going to have somebody who speaks kind of the, um, you know, textbook French, not not using an accent that one would expect uh, to find in Central Africa. Interesting. Now, there is this uh, North Korean company, uh, Mansudeh Overseas Projects, that is known for uh, doing a bit of statuary work uh, in Africa. And in fact, um, vis- uh, South Korean visual artist and filmmaker Won Jun Che has been working on a project called Mansudeh Masterclass for a number of years. He has visited all the uh, North Korean construction sites in Africa. There's quite a few of them. Uh, and he's currently working on a book project that will be out later this year, early next year. And I'm hoping to have him on the podcast for that. Uh, and he's been to yeah at least a dozen different buildings, statues, parks, and other monuments. And there's clearly a long and interesting history of North Korea memorializing things in Africa for African governments. So does this story fit into that context? Yeah, that's a that's a real vexing question we dealt with, particularly as people who are not don't have the depth of North Korea expertise, uh, you know, as somebody from your organization. But all I can say is that I showed some pictures of the statues to uh, people who have you know spent a lot of time chasing Mansude, if you want to call it that, and. Yep. At least in the case of the one statue that's uh, meant to be of uh, former President Joseph Kabila's father, they the the response I got was that this didn't necessarily look like it met the quality standards of Monsu Day work. Um, so that's really all I have to to go off of. But, but one of so the you're in- saying that nowhere in the paper trail does that name uh, appear, Monsu Day Overseas Projects? No, and that frankly doesn't entirely surprise me, even. You know, not having looked a lot at North Korea, I would I would be surprised. But I will say that, you know, if you dig around in the in the end notes where sometimes we like to put some of the juicier stuff in our reports counterintuitively, you'll see that, um, yes, Mansude has been present in the DRC. In fact, they built in the early 2000s two statues, one again of Joseph Kabila's father, um, who is president, who preceded his son as president. Um Laurent. So there's a statue of him, Laurent Desier, exactly. And then there's uh, Patrice Lumumba, the um, kind of independence icon of uh, the DRC. And we know that Mansude built those because uh, I think some years later, the UN panel of experts uh, determined that and, and wrote about it in one of their reports. But then another thing, two things actually we found that I had not seen in the public domain previously was we were able to identify a company – that it at least included the terms Mansude overseas and I think PROJ or projects yep. uh, in, in taxpayer roles from the DRC. And mm. those taxpayer roles indicated that that affiliate, apparent affiliate of Mansude was uh, no longer in business. But we were able to find a contract that had been awarded by the same provincial government that uh, Mr. Wang Kilsu was trying to sell this fantastical park idea to. Um, They had commissioned Mansude to build 
a monument in Kinshasa to an important religious figure. Um, and granted, that precedes the the sanctions as far as I understand. But it, it does look like Mansude has been in the DRC. They've done work there. And at least at one point, they had a, a local affiliate incorporated uh, in the DRC. So we have now, if I understand correctly, we have a, a total of four statues, two uh, that were definitely built by Mansude, and then two built by Mr. Rapak and Mr. Huang. Is that right? That's right. Uh, what makes North Korea such an attractive supplier of uh, statuary uh, to uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo? That's that's getting into a, <laughs> an academic topic where I mean I could I could uh, freelance a bit, but I'd probably get myself in trouble. So um, it's not to, not just price point then. I mean that that is what I understand from talking to people and reading studies on North Korean arts is that you have this kind of rare combination of people who are extraordinarily skilled and and have really deep expertise, but the you know what they charge is is uh, really below any competitor uh, price point. So also, I mean one one important thing to to note about North Korea is that it's had pretty lengthy relations and consistent relations with various governments in place in the DRC. So stemming back to Mobutu Sese Seko, who was kind of this um, you know, really larger than life yeah. autocrat who ran the country, uh, some would say not so well. He was very close to the DPRK. My understanding is that he even, even had an embedded uh, military advisor in the presidency from mm. North Korea. He inked a bunch of defense deals, you know, kind of a, a if I understand correctly, a, a standard template for a lot of these um, post-colonial African countries. Then when Joseph Kabila's father overthrew Mobutu, I think there was a clearly a pretty quick effort to cozy up to uh, Elder Kabila, and then the North Koreans had pretty you know, favorable relations with his government. Then going into the most recent president, Joseph Kabila, we have quite a bit of evidence that Joseph Kabila's party, the PPRD, which you know ruled the country for I think uh, was it 19 years, they had really tight relationships with the DPRK. In fact, there was a press release that by that same party, the PPRD, and then a subsequent article by the Korean state-run, North Korean state-run media that demonstrates that in August 2016, uh, the man who had just left the outgoing foreign minister for North Korea, I think Ri Su-young, mm, yeah. um, and vice chairman of the Korean Workers' Party, actually went to Kinshasa and met with a number of senior officials from the PPRD, including uh, a gentleman who I think is is one of the top figures in the party overall and later would become the justice minister of the DRC. So those ties are pretty deep. Yeah. Um, so it's not entirely surprising that, you know, the DRC might actually welcome you know, the North Koreans to come in and and uh, you know, do what they they like doing, which seems to be generating revenue. So once again, these two statues that we're talking about in this story, who are they of? It's fascinating. The first statue is of an individual. It's not entirely clear to me whether or not he is you know, historical or mythical or some combination of the two. But mm. a man by the name of Ilunga Mbidi Kilue, who is a, you know, again, a, an important figure to people who come from this ethnic group called the Luba. That's L-U-B-A. And, and it's a, a fairly expansive ethnic group in the DRC. Our understanding is that Joseph Kabila, the former president, was a Luba himself. So uh -huh. the first statue is of this important figure to the Luba. 
And then the second statue is of Joseph Kabila's father, uh, Laurent Desiré Kabila. In the case of the second statue, the one of Kabila's father, it's a bit bigger than a human being, probably yeah. big enough where you'd be, you'd have a, a crummy day if it fell on you. And then mm-hmm. the one of Ilunga Mbidi Kulue is, I think, probably one and a half times larger than the, the Kabila statue. So it's quite big. But still nowhere near basic... the size of the Kim statues in Pyongyang, right? I mean, that, that's, no, that's sort of your gold not standard. At all. And that was actually one detail that maybe would mean something to some of your uh, listeners is that just just as a kind of armchair observer on North Korean public works, it seems like Mansude, from my view, is is kind of building statues and other projects that are kind of of national importance and at such a scale that they generate international attention, which is why somebody like me had even heard of the name Matsude before even dipping my toe into something related to North Korea. What's fascinating to me is that these two gentlemen, and perhaps this is a, a function of just you know the, the very sanctions that we were talking about earlier, is they didn't go to, as far as we can tell, the president. You know, they didn't they didn't go and build a you know hundred foot tall statue of Joseph Kabila on the grounds of the the presidential palace or or something of something of that sort that would most likely have immediately gathered uh, gained attention from you know the press and and local observers etc. Instead, what we see them doing is going to provincial officials, even if some of those provincial officials have important uh, roles and and duties in political parties that are quite important at the national level. So, again, we don't we don't know if that's necessarily an, an indicator of who these people might be. Or if this is an indication of a, a you know potential strategy for avoiding the kind of attention that could really throw a wet blanket on this revenue generating activity. Do we know what they cost? What the value either of each of them or together what they were? No, <laughs> uh, I'll say so that, that, we, that did not turn up in the paper trail. Then that's interesting. No, no, no. And in fact, if you if you kind of read the little there is in the public record, primarily from Congolese state-run media about these projects, it it becomes pretty evident that the details of the contract that was signed for these two statues, they were not disclosed. And typically, if I see a journalist say, you know, X person did not provide any details or there were no additional details on, you know, whatever topic, that wouldn't have been put in the article by happenstance. So, you know, again, this is me kind of making some assumptions, but but I would guess that these were not contracts that were awarded in any kind of standard process, which is probably why using the typical means we would use to get, you know, any kind of contracting document did not work in this case. Do we know what they're made of or what it looks like they're made of? Yeah, it's a good question. I think they're bronze or they have some sort of drab bronze finish to them, as well as some parts of the statues that are painted, particularly in the statue of Ilunga Mbidi Kilue. There's a he's holding he has kind of a pouch uh, that's colored brown. In some cases, it looks like they have to continuously touch these things up. And then he has a loincloth, which was painted kind of a dark brown at some point. And then a, a spear, and that spear was also painted uh, at various points. So it doesn't look to me like the shiny, the the you know the cornea searing sheen on some of these Mansude statues that um, that you know you you can read about in the news. 
But then separately, after the report came out, and I believe your uh, NK News covered this, mm. we were able to find some statues in Libreville, Gabon, so not too far away in Central Africa. Yeah. And the statues look a lot a lot alike uh, or look a lot like the ones we found in the DRC in the sense that, you know, they're, they're fairly drab uh, finish. There's some painted elements to them. Like they're one of the statues. There are these two footballers fighting over the ball. Each little section of the ball is painted like an African flag. And these statues oh. were, are emplaced at this stadium, this huge stadium that was, you know, even inaugurated by the president, uh, Ali Bongo of uh, Gabon, called the Chinese-Gabonese Friendship Stadium. And this was set up, as far as we understand, in advance of the African Cup of Nations. So this was no small, um, you know, work. Mm. And then it just so happens that we have these two statues that look like things um, we found in the DRC, and they even have a plaque on them, which says, this artwork was produced by Pak Song. Mm. Um, in my understanding from speaking with people who know a lot more about, you know, Korean naming conventions and kind of how the North Koreans operate when they try to generate revenue abroad is that it's unlikely that these are two separate people. Now, you mentioned um, that this is uh, this activity is, is largely designed to create uh, cash revenue for the state, for the North Korean state. Um, we don't know what the costs of the two statues are because, as you said, that those details weren't given uh, in in the media reporting from uh, Congo. But how much can we reasonably expect uh, would be made for the North Korean state coffers by erecting two statues, one that's a little bit larger than human size and one that's about 1.5 times the human size uh, made of bronze. What Are we talking millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands? That's also a really good question. I, I think it stands to reason that these individuals and the people who ultimately would have sent them on this, uh, you know, presumed mission, they would not have done so unless there was some sort of economic benefit to it. At the minimum, they made something, there, there was some net from this. They netted something. Uh, sure. And the best way I've heard that concept put into perspective is by a North Korea expert or a proliferation finance expert, excuse me, who also happens to be an expert in North Korea at the Royal United Services uh, Institute with whom we did a, Hillary and I both did a think tank event quite recently. And she said, you know, yes, the North Koreans, the North Koreans are involved in smuggling and things of that nature, but we're not talking about a couple packets of cigarettes here. Like these yeah. are these are public works, you know, and and so I can't imagine it would have been something that wasn't worth it for them. It didn't end up being in some way more lucrative than smuggling a couple packs of cigarettes. We get the sense from some additional information that we've gathered subsequent to the release of the report that this would have been well worth their while. Um, and, and I can't necessarily say, you know, a million or two million, but, um, but this, this would have been a project that, that, um, would have been attractive to the North Korean government, uh, maybe not in the individual, but perhaps in the aggregate. Now I, you're, you're being quite coy there, uh, John, in terms <laughs> of ballpark figures, Hillary, can I get you to, uh, if you're a betting woman, what would you think they would make from this, uh, to the nearest number of figures? 
I mean, I, I really, I really don't know. I would be guessing how much they would make from two statues, but what I, what I can extrapolate from other activities I'm aware of, uh, that, that are going on in central Africa, namely the restaurants that we know about, um, that are run by North Koreans and the like medical service centers that we've heard of. Um, it's my understanding that, you know, some of these, projects can easily bring in a hundred thousand dollars in cash that mm. they're then able to i mean it's not a ton of money it may not sound like a lot of money but if you're able well, it's to not do it's it not in, drug smuggling money that's for sure no but if you're able to do it in you know 10 countries across the continent yeah. that does add up uh to some degree and they they do diversify i mean these this i mean these these agents are constantly evolving uh, as well to come up with the the best way to to raise uh, the cash that they need, um, and I, I think they're taking they're looking for you know every every corner of the world where there's weak enforcement uh, to try to um, be successful and, and get and obtain cash and and move it back to North Korea or do whatever it is that they need to do with it. Now, is it believed that Mr. Park and Mr. Huang themselves went and uh, erected these statues? I mean, are they supposed to have done any physical labor on the work, uh, on the statues on site, or did they simply oversee its transport from North Korea and somebody else put it up for them? From the photos we have of the work sites. Yeah, and tell us a bit look... about those photos and how you came across them. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in terms of the labor, we think they were using local labor, at least in some aspects of the projects. So the statues of these two individuals are actually in roundabouts, traffic circles. Mm. And it appears that the company Kangua Conde also kind of rehabbed those traffic circles. In the case of the larger statue, they, you know, added some walkways. It looks like they put in some, you know, decorative plants and um, some smaller statues of animals that, that you know, look like they might have been even made by a local artist. But, but it looks like they have Congolese laborers doing work on the, the roundabouts. But the interesting thing about the statues themselves, which mm. we, you know, it, it, would, it seems the North Koreans are quite adept at producing. We have a picture from three months, I believe, after the company Congo Conde was incorporated. When this important political figure happens to go through this small provincial capital where Pak and Wong were building the, the um, these two statues, the person stands in front of a statue that's entirely complete, and it's covered mm. in this kind of orange tarp. So the first question we had is, number one, it's quite impressive to, to land in a new country or what we would assume is a new country, set up a company, and then shortly thereafter identify a line of business in a province that is, you know, my understanding is it takes hours upon hours to just get to. It wouldn't be a natural place you would go to to, you know, hot knob and try to try to win a contract. So so not only is that the fact that they won the contracts that quickly in and of itself an enormous feat, but also it looks like the statues were done, you know, you know, very quickly. Yeah. So that raises the question, or a lot of questions, but one of them is, was this actually a statue that was built on site? Is this something that might have been produced at a workshop in another city, such as the one where the company was headquartered, um, which is you know, some some distance away from this this smaller provincial capital? But, um, you know, my understanding is in some cases, North Koreans have imported uh, statues or excuse me, have, have, uh, shipped statues to the ultimate destination for them and then just installed them. Yeah. Um, we don't really know if that's the case here, but, 
but the time the the timeline is you know is odd and raises many many questions uh, do we know if the company congo or Conde still exists the congolese corporate registry in general is not something that is going to be updated as quickly as as some corporate registry so you know, in, in the UK, let's say you don't pay your annual fee or some other jurisdiction, you don't pay your annual fee and your company is struck off the registry. Yep. I don't know that we would necessarily be able to tell that that was the case with Congo Conde. I think probably the better measure would just be, do we see them doing anything now? And I think the answer is no. Have you uh, tried emailing or contacting these two gentlemen to ask them any questions for your report? We did. Uh, we, we had a phone number and an email for them. Uh, and we contacted them, but I'm sure you'll be surprised to hear that we got no response. Uh, in which country was that phone number located? The phone number was actually a local Congolese uh, uh. phone number, so 243 area code. Uh, and the email was just Congo Akande, um, you know, at a standard email domain. So yeah. nothing, nothing fanciful or, you know, uh, cryptic. Okay, let's turn now to your recommendations. On the basis of your investigations, what do you actually recommend the international community uh, as well as the Democratic Republic of Congo should do? Well, we have lots of recommendations. Um, we have, I think first and foremost um, is recognizing that the reason you know these two individuals uh, found it so easy to do business and uh, operate in the DRC was because the DRC has a very serious problem of weak sanctions enforcement, but also a very weak anti-money laundering uh, regime in place. Um, so our, our number one recommendation to both the, the DRC government, but also to the international community, is to uh, improve sanctions enforcement and to do if it, you know if it you know if if uh, if it's feasible uh, have you know the UN the US EU uh, FATF uh, you know the Financial Action Task Force uh, a whole number of the IMF um, I mean there's many different organizations that could do this but to provide technical assistance to help. Uh, develop Congo's uh, infrastructure to um, to better detect this type of behavior and stop it before it hap before it happens. All, a lot of their activities too were facilitated uh, through the the bank branch that they used, um, and so there is a responsibility on the part of the banking system in the Congo as well to you know to make sure that all of their tellers and their customer service agents are trained fully on you know what you know how to how to search the sanctions lists and what to do when a north korean a north korean individual hands over their north korean passport and tries yeah. to open a bank account um, i mean there are some very basic due diligence uh, steps that were not taken in this case and that is a glaring problem because yes it's it's north korea today but tomorrow it could be uh, you know international organized crime or Iranian uh, proliferation activities or some other, you know, some other egregious criminality that the entire world has agreed and the DRC has agreed to uh, to sanction um, and has agreed that it's a problem and they should stop. But the, the DRC is unable to even even detect that this activity is happening. Mm. Um, so that was our that was our main first recommendation. Um, and then we, you know, we have a lot of very technical additional recommendations related to that and also in terms of additional sanctions um, that we think uh, should be considered. Um, but I mean, the, the, the biggest 
problem in our in our opinion is um, from our point of view is is really the lack of an effective anti money laundering regime in right. in the Congo. So it's it's uh, number one uh, enforce uh, sanctions that Congo has. Um you know, is a party to by being a member of the United Nations. And number two, uh, do your due diligence and anti-money laundering activities. Know your customer, that sort of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Has yeah. The, the, the Century done other investigations into North Korea sanctions busting? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I believe this. I mean, at least in, in my tenure in the last three years, we, this is the first. Uh, this is the first investigation uh, on that involves North Korea. Okay. And what are you both working on now? Uh, well, I can tell you just to answer the question you just asked and also get at the, the other question about whether we've done other work on North Korean sanctions busting. Um, we are hopeful, but not yet entirely certain um, that we'll be able to eke out another report on these individuals and their company in the DRC. I mentioned ah. a bit earlier that we had come across some new information and as is often the case when you write something like this, all of a sudden people you would have loved to talk to at the very outset come out of the woodwork. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so we've we've gotten some interesting things. I would say at this point we're trying to piece together that that maybe give a little bit clearer picture of commercial trajectory of this of this uh, company Kangua Conde. Maybe a little bit more detail about Mr. Uh, Pak and Mr. Wong, and then I think we'll probably try to include a little bit of analysis at this point uh, along the lines of what Hillary was saying, which is how is it that these people are able to come into this country and, and do activity that um, you know the international community would not like them to be able to do with with little apparent um, resistance. And you know so I think there may be some reflection on, on whether or not that's a trend not only in the DRC but uh, perhaps more broadly in the Central Africa region and, and uh, maybe across the continent um, as well. And, and then, of course, you've got to work on your uh, your script for the film. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, John, who's going to play you? I don't know. Shia LaBeouf. Uh, he kind of has curly hair like me. Um, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of options. Can you have a good ca- a good chase scene in uh, in Kinshasa or in the in the sorry in the regional capitals? I don't, not even sure where that is. Uh, um, these roundabouts there. I, I could see the cars driving around and around the roundabouts while you're trying to get a good shot of the of the statues. That'd be good. Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, there may be some good opportunities for a high speed car chase with a you know Toyota Hilux with one of these statues in the back covered in this tarp. Maybe that's veering a bit into uh, comedy, though. <laughs> I tell you what, for a bit of, for an inside joke, um, you you mentioned earlier on the uh, the president of Gabon, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Bongo. He's actually memorialized here in South Korea uh, because there is a a brand of truck, the Bongo truck, named after that president. So it's interesting that Gabon <laughs> has had relations with both North Korea, uh, both Koreas, North and South. Uh, and uh-huh. so if you want to do kind of a wink to that, you'd have to have the statue in a bongo truck driving around and being chased. <laughs> that, that's uh, that's deep. Uh, I'm, I'm already ready to sign a contract for you to write the uh, script for this. Wonderful. Do uh, do give my regards to uh, George Clooney and tell him I particularly liked him in the Coen Brothers films. Will do. Absolutely. Those were, those were great films. Yeah. They are. Uh, thank you once again, Hilary Mossberg and John DeLosso, for joining me here on the NK News podcast today. And we encourage everyone to go to thecentury.org and download this uh, report, Overt, uh, Overt Affairs, How North Korean Businessmen Busted Sanctions in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and keep an eye on future reports. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you.